Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. This Sunday, Sean Visser will start us into a new preaching series for this fall season, which is called God in the Center. And the title of Sean's sermon today is Living for God's Glory. What does it mean? And if we live for God's glory, how does this show on the outside? Join us for today's sermon and find out more what love, grace and faith have to do with honoring God. But now, here is Sean. As Günther has already mentioned before, God in the center is what we want to more closely look at and understand um, and just to to see what it really is to have God as the driving factor, as this single most defining thing in our lives and as the core of our identity. Um, and I remember a few months ago, Günther preached on the topic of Solus Christus. Um, maybe some of you also remember Solus Christus, meaning Christ only. And as to how it was his sacrifice and his action and his action only that lays the foundation of our salvation. So recently, as we always hear again in the prayer requests, as we, um, as we see just looking to the news, um, looking over to the States or here in Europe and Asia, all over the world, we've been shaken up by these recent events. We are experiencing the pandemic of a century. Um, people compare it to the Spanish flu, which was a hundred years ago, which devastated and um, turned the whole world upside down. And if, if I'm quite honest, this event now, it's, it's also something I and probably you two cannot fully comprehend yet. It's, it's, it's shaken up the, the very foundation of our lives. Everything is up in the air and we have to, we have to uh, see What is more relevant than ever now? And I think that this promise that Jesus gave, that we heard in Solus Christus, Christ only, this, this unmovable promise stands true more than ever today. And I think this is also the only thing that can shine a true light into this darkness that we are experiencing and give us true hope. And so as we, we still are in this state of shock, you can say it, as we are still adapting, redefining how, what it means now to go about our lives, we, we must concentrate and return to the core. And thus, our, um, our topic now will be God in the center. So I would like to pray together with us um, as we start today. Heavenly Father, we, yeah, we pray that we come to you not only because We are in despair, not only because we are experiencing this darkness around us, but because, because we know that you are the light, because we are drawn to you, because we want to be where you are. We want to be who you want us to be. Lord, we pray for open hearts and open minds that through your word, through your love, and through your son, you will transform us, that that we will hear with open ears what you want to put in our hearts, that you will change the very foundation we are, we are set upon, that we will understand that we shall not hold on to the things of this world, but that we, will, that we shall build and raise a kingdom on, on your Son and your promise, Lord. 
yeah, Lord, guide us through this Sunday, guide us through this service, and ultimately guide us through this week and the life ahead of us. We pray again, Lord, that you open our hearts and minds as we look into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So to be quite honest, when preparing for today's sermon, I actually didn't quite know where to begin. Um, as a leadership team, we were looking through what should what should we preach about next? What what is it that we as the church need to hear right now? What is it that as a church we have to focus on right now? And there are so many things. And again, when we're looking outside, there's so much going on. But that probably, or most likely, most definitely, actually, calls us to look not just at the things of the world, but to focus again on our core. And when we look at our core, we can look at the Bible, the Bible which is the truth uh, held for us. The Bible tells so many stories of uh, God's glory, which has been put to display by so many practical examples. We see stories of people, of the Israelites, of uh, nations who have lived a life pleasing to God in one way or another. And still, knowing all that, seeing all that throughout the course of history, when we look out, how do we do it now? How does this fundamental importance that defines everything that goes on in, in this book, how does it affect us today? How can we apply it as we go out with our masks, uh, riding the U-Bahn, keeping distance to everyone? And in the coming weeks, um, um, as we go through this series, we will, we will try to look at very practical examples of um, how we can commit and recommit certain areas of our lives and ultimately our whole life to God and putting Him in the center again. But today's series, uh, today's sermon, sorry, it, it shall lay, it shall lay a foundation. And it shall lay this foundation, not just for the series to come, but for our lives. It shall, reveal and remind us of this fundamental truth that defines our Christian lives. So when looking it up, I found the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was formulated by theologians in the mid-1600s, uh, mid so I think around 1646 or 47. And their question was, what is man's chief end? What is the ultimate purpose of man. And the answer they came to was, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the chief end of man, the chief end of us, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And exactly that is what I want to try to explore, laying this foundation today, living for the glory of God. And the verse here that I want to use to guide us through this topic, it's, Probably the most famous, most often cited verse. Um, I used to remember it from Sunday school. It's, if I think about it, probably even the first verse that I learned by heart. It's the verse we still teach the kids in Sunday school. And it is so because it holds the most fundamental truth, once again, that we as Christians hold on to. Because when we ask ourselves, what does it really mean living for the glory of God? It's very vague. Putting God in the center, well, it means marveling at his greatness. It's 
looking at his infinite goodness and holiness and ultimately where we find ourselves in relation to this ultimately good, infinitely holy God will be where God has put this ultimate love and glory to display. And I think that is the cross of Jesus Christ. So I think most of you can already guess what verse it is going to be. Um, Daniel also uh, opened last week's service as he led us through it with that verse. Yeah, uh, John 3.16. I hope it's the one you guessed. Uh, otherwise, surprise, it's John 3.16. Uh, last week, Hartmut um, was with us and he taught us about the greatest commandment, to love God and to love one another. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So let's take this first part, love. For God so loved the world. The verse starts with that and we see right there, this love, it was the driving force for God to reach out to us. It was the driving force that put everything into motion. And there it's important also for us to understand love is not something God created. Love is not something that God just snapped out of nothing. It's, it's his very essence. Because if we think about it, if God were unipersonal, if God were just one person, a single entity, not the Trinity as we know him to be, then there would have been no love until he created other beings. If there's nothing else, then he couldn't love. Then God would be powerful, sovereign. He would be great. And the core of the universe, the essence of God would be power. But the heart of the universe is love. And that is possible because God is triune. He is a trinity. He eternally has been existing in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this so loving relationship has existed since the very beginning, since before the beginning already. So it teaches us that this Christian conception of God is the only one that can justify and can put love at the, at the essence, at the core of this universe. And if we then skip ahead, look, look to Jesus again. Look to the time where, um, where he lived here on earth, where he was walking among, among us. And then we look to, to Jesus' betrayal, just before he went to the cross, before he put the ultimate display of love for us to see. Um, in John chapter 16, verse 14, and John 17, verses 1 to 5, we read Jesus saying, He so the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. And John 17 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have, been, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we have it popping up all over, glory, 
glorify, glorify me, glorify the Father, glorify the Son. And still we haven't gotten closer to what this term glorifies, really glorifying really means. Many of you know um, I've played um, classical music just to fit a stereotype for many years. Um, I played the violin for, well, a really long time. Um, and when we think about classical music, the first names that pop up are Mozart, Beethoven, Vivaldi, all the greats and the truly impressive musical geniuses. And I admit they are really incredible. They have... They have um, produced stuff that was unheard of. But there's one more often forgotten about, one that I personally appreciate very much. Uh, it's, it's Bach. Um, about his life, less is known. And I remember when playing many pieces of him while I was still playing, uh, at the end of the sheet, he would always sign, he would always sign them with S dot, D dot, G dot. And as a kid, I was quite confused about it because his name is Johann Sebastian Bach, not Sohan Sebastian Gach. <laughs> so it, it didn't really make sense to me at all. So I asked around and uh, my, my teacher told me, Soli Deo Gloria. He didn't sign his pieces with his name, but he signed them Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. So when listening to his great masterpieces, we shall not find them useful. We shall not find them pointing towards him. But in them we shall see and appreciate the beauty that God has given, that God has given through music. So to glorify something, it is to praise, enjoy, and delight in something. When something is useful to you, or if you feel attracted to it for it being useful, then you think about what it can bring for you. But if it's beautiful, if it's beautiful in itself, then you enjoy it simply because of what it is. I, I thought of this yesterday as this example. If I have this old crappy car, I enjoy it because it's useful, because it gets me from A to B. But if I have a Lamborghini, which I don't, it, it would be beautiful and I would just sit in it to enjoy. I would drive around just to enjoy for what, uh, enjoy it for what it is. So to glorify something is to praise and joy and delight in it. But to glorify someone is also to serve someone, to serve and to move towards it. So thinking of it, instead of sacrificing other people's interest to make myself, to make yourself happy, you sacrifice your interest to make them happy. And why do you do that? Because your ultimate joy is not to see you enjoy, but to see them enjoy. That gives you ultimate joy. So what does it then mean that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify one another? In the, the book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, he, he tries to picture it. And um, if we try to picture it, we could, we could look at self-centeredness as being static, as being stationary, as just standing right where you are. In self-centeredness, we demand that others orbit around us. Everything revolves around me. Everything moves around me. And we will do things and give affection to others only as long as it serves our purpose, as it meets my personal goals, and as long as it fulfills me. 
And I don't know if you've ever been to a ball in Vienna um, or anywhere else. Actually, that we also do. What was it like? If you think about it, or if I think about it, I was go there. People have drinks. People are walking around, moving around, talking, chatting. But the core and the the party of this of this ball is the dance floor. People moving around, dancing with each other. But now try to picture this. You're at this beautiful ball. All the dancers are ready. The, the musicians hold up their, their instruments. And they're just waiting for the first chord. And then the first chord comes and nothing. Everyone's just standing still. Nobody's moving because everyone demands the other move around me. The other one orbit around me. That wouldn't be a ball, that wouldn't be a dance. Everyone would just be standing there with no movement, static, waiting for the other to please me. If we compare that to the inner life of a triune God, it's utterly different. The life of the Trinity, it's characterized not by self-centered, by demanding that someone move around me, but it's about mutual and self-giving love. The Trinity, they enter into a dynamic orbit around each other. They, they create a dance. No one demands that the other revolve around them. And because of that, because of this constant moving, because of this orbit around each other, the music goes on, the joy goes on forever and ever. When Jesus said you must love yourselves in order to find yourself, he was recounting what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had been doing for all eternity. In creation, what we have been given is merely an invitation. God created us to invite us into the stands. He invited us to the ball so that we can be part of it. Not that we could stand on the sidelines and wait for everything to dance, but that we could actually be part of the dance. So the only way that we as his created beings, created in his image, don't forget that, the only way that we can join, uh, join in the same joy is if we center our lives around him instead of ourselves. If we stay, instead of waiting for everything to revolve around me, we enter into the stance. And the historian George Marston, he summarized uh, an idea by Jonathan Edwards when he said, the universe is an explosion of God's glory. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw creatures to ever increasingly share in the Godhead's joy and delight. So the ultimate end of creation, the ultimate end of creation then is union and love between God and his loving creatures. Union. So do we believe that? Do we believe that to be true and therefore a guiding principle in our lives? And if we believe it's true, shouldn't it impact the way we live? If everything really exists for God's glory... Doesn't that mean that we, you, me, I, everyone, that we also exist for God's glory? Because after all, being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ means that we should do what Jesus Christ did. And what did Jesus Christ do? Everything he did was for the glory of God. So shouldn't every thought we think, every word we speak, every act we do also be then for the purpose of glorifying God? So now that we have looked back on the topic of love from last week, and we've, we now see how God has eternally been love. It's not something he created. It's his essence. Let's 
Just compare that to the stance for today, orbiting around each other. Love leads to glorification, as we see. Loving union leads that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify each other. And then to continue in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So this love, it's dirt action. It didn't remain static. God didn't stay there and say, well, humankind failed, I'll just wait there. But he reached out to us. He reached out to us and uh, reached out to us and did it by putting Jesus on a cross. And that's the next thing. So we had love, but Jesus on the cross, that is grace. Grace is what was the consequence of love. An invitation from God. And Paul speaks of this, this word grace, of immeasurable riches of God's grace in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. I'll read them for us. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So there are two astonishing things we can see when we look at that passage. Number one, the purpose of our salvation. The purpose of our, of, uh, of our salvation is for God to lavish his riches and his grace on us. Because God is this overflowing, in, inexhaustible storage of goodness and love, and he wants to share it with us. That's why he needed to, to redeem us, to save us, that he could let the, open the floodgates again and release it on us. And the other one, that one is maybe a bit more hidden, but it will take him forever to do so. And you might be thinking, well, how can it take him forever to do so? Jesus already died. Jesus was already on the cross. Grace is available to us now. We can already come to the Father. But I say grace is eternal because it will take him that long to, to empty those inexhaustible stores of love and grace that he wants to pour out on us. Grace is not something that he can pour out now and then it's exhausted and he has to replenish it, but it keeps on giving. And seeing that, seeing what lies ahead in our lives, we can also say that most of the grace we will experience still lies in the future. Uh, a few weeks ago, I watched a movie. Um, I actually rewatched it because I'd seen it a few years ago, but Emily and I wanted to watch something that makes your eyes sweat. Um, it's nah, it's a very sad movie and uh, you'll cry a lot but I can still very much recommend it The Fault in Our Stars it's about um, it's about a kid uh, a teenager who is dying of cancer and um, she, she finds love or she, she finds a boy um, who at first seems to have beaten the cancer but as it turns out he um, he was dying and he was dying very soon um, the female lead character, Hazel, uh, then is asked by her boyfriend to, to rush to the church and to read her eulogy to him because she had already prepared the, the words that she would speak at his funeral, but he wanted to hear them before he died. 
And there she stands then in the church and she opens the letter and, and she starts telling about how they are different eternities. She explains it, for, for example, if you take the numbers 0 and 1, and you, if you look at them, in between 0 and 1, there's an infinite, infinite amount of numbers. So you have 0 0.1, 0 0.11, 0 0.12, and so on. You have an infinite amount of numbers. And so we can take that and compare it to the grace that we have already experienced through the gift of God in, in here now in our lifetime. It's already an infinite amount of grace that has been bestowed to us and upon us through the salvation of Jesus Christ. But then as we go on, as we look beyond numbers from zero to one, if you look at numbers from zero to infinity or from now to eternity, if you look at that, there are an infinite amount of numbers in between there, but there are also infinitely more numbers than between zero and one. And so we can see and understand future grace from now to eternity, all the grace that we will be given makes this eternity of grace and this infinite amount of grace that we have experienced now infinitely small in comparison. Does that make sense? I hope so. So what then stands in between this eternity of grace in store for us and receiving and receiving and being part of the infinite amount of grace or receiving it at all. What stands between us and God? What stands between his salvation and our acceptance? Jeremiah 9, uh, verses 23 and 24 read, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So right here in this passage, God names the three or his great competitors for the boast of human heart. And each one of them, wisdom, might, and riches, they tempt us to take our satisfaction and seek it in ourselves. It's our intelligence, our strength, our personal and material resources, or ultimately, as we can call them, pride. Pride lures us away from trusting God. It lures us away from trusting Him as the superior satisfaction. So if we look at that, it must be radically humbling to confess that the source of all of our joy, it resides not in ourselves. It's not our wisdom, might, or riches. It's outside ourselves. It's God giving to us. But then when we exalt in the freedom that we have been given by God, something we call faith, it's not just the grace that we have experienced, but the future grace that should practically nullify the power of pride in our lives. If we look to the satisfaction of being outside, of being grace given to us, eternal, infinite grace, and we respond to it by faith, 
then pride should have no power. And that's exactly how the passage in Ephesians 2 by Paul concludes, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. It's from outside. It's not a result of your works so that no one may boast. Paul understands and tells us that if you look to grace and if you look to where it really came from, there can be no boast. Paul, who was probably the the greatest evangelist we can see in the Bible, who spread the word, who was convicted like no one else, he himself says it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And that leads me to the last point. So we had love being the dance, grace being the invitation, and now faith being the response. So looking back to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal lives. And that's what I meant in the very beginning, that we need to humble ourselves. We need to find ourselves kneeling at the foot of the cross, looking at the display of love and grace. It's not something that we have contributed to, and we must acknowledge this. Because trusting in God, kneeling there, and being arrogant at the same time are opposites. Faith and pride, they don't go together, they are opposites. We must remind ourselves what faith is. John 6:35 says Jesus said to them I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst Belief in Jesus means that we must come to Jesus for the satisfaction of all that God is for us Unbelief or pride as we can call it is turning away from Jesus and seeking satisfaction in other things When we think of the downfall of Satan, his sin, his downfall was looking at himself and seeing how marvelous and great he is instead of looking at him who has given it to him. So belief to us, it's not merely an agreement in our head. It's not just agreeing to the facts in our head that God is there, he's great, he died for us, well, that's good. No, belief, faith is also an appetite for God. It's an appetite for God in our hearts. So, therefore, eternal life, it's not given to people who merely think that Jesus is the Son of God. It's given to people who drink from Jesus as the Son of God. John 4, 14 says, The water I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And John six fifty one says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And these verses, they make this image so clear what the essence of, uh, the essence of faith really is. It's, as I said, more than just believing, more than just thinking it is true. It's more than just believing that there is such a thing as food and water. It's more than believing that Jesus is life giving a food and water. But faith is coming to Jesus and eating the food and drinking the water so that we will find our hearts satisfied in him. I could know that there's a bottle of water standing there and still be thirsty. I could pour myself a glass 
of water and still be thirsty. But until I put it to my mouth, until I drink from it, I will forever be thirsty. Only when I really accept it and take it, then my heart and my thirst will be satisfied. So that's why I want to ask you if these words in John 3.16 are true to you. When you look at that verse, when you repeat it in your, in your mind, in your heart, can you only say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life? Or can you say, for God so loved me that he gave his only son so that because I believe in him, because I drink of Jesus as the son of God, I shall not perish but have eternal life? Because this is the basis for it all. The opening question by the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And the basis for all of that, to make that possible at all, you must be able to say, for God so loved me, for God so loved this world and loved me that he gave his only son, that because I believe in him, I shall not perish but have eternal life. We have seen love as knowing of this eternal dance, knowing that there's this endless joy and this mutual self-giving love of the Trinity. We see that grace is God's invitation for us. Grace is put to display on the cross by the blood of Jesus Christ who took the sin of ourselves upon him. And faith must be our response. Well, no, it must be my response, it must be your response. It's not our response corporately, it's my personal response. Because I believe in him, I shall not perish but have eternal life. Because God's overwhelming passion is to exalt, magnify, display, protect and vindicate his glory. It's all about his glory and his glory alone. It's all about him and his passion for his own glory. He seeks to display it, show it, demonstrate it for all of us to see. And God opposes in it all enemies of his glory or those who think too little of it. It's the clearly most important reality in his affections. And he loves his glory infinitely. He has to. Because everything God does is for one purpose and as I said, this is his glory. In Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, we tell us, uh, we read that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims the handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So the celestial bodies of the universe they are all put into place and exploding with unimaginable energy for the purpose of God, the glory of God. And as we look to the stars at night, as we look to the sun in the day, what are they telling us? They are declaring to us in their speech, as we see, that God is glorious. In their very existence, they shout out, God is glorious. They declare the glory of God, so why don't we? Because at the end of, of the age, when all is said and done, and we bask in eternity, the promise that will fill the earth, it says God promises that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. 
So as we are trying to lay this foundation, as we are trying to prepare for the weeks ahead where we want to look into what it really means and how it affects putting God in the center of our lives, I want to ask you, what is it that you are still withholding? Well, you might be thinking, God, church, my family, even my hobbies, well, I commit them all to you. I put you at the center of my church life. I put you at the center of my family and even in my hobbies, you're present all the time. But you know, time, mm, I'm so busy all the time and I'm really caught up with these things and I have these projects to do. So well, just leave time management to me. Or maybe it's the work for you. Maybe you want to say, well, God, don't even get me started on work. I have these assignments and my boss is already sitting in my neck and work is my thing. And relationships, well, please leave it to me. I, I have a plan. I notice someone and I really don't want you to interfere there. Are it, is it your own plans? Is it your own wisdom, strength and um, personal resources that you look to? Or do you take all these and put God at the center? Can you say, for God so loved me that he gave his only son that because I believe in him, I shall not perish but have eternal life? Can you say that the very core and the very thing you hope and hold on to is God in the center. Let us pray. Yeah, Father, we look to you and we, we continue to marvel at your infinite goodness and holiness. But Lord, most of all, we are stirred by your love, by your grace for us, by how you have reached out to us and how you have made it possible for us to enter back into the dance that has been going on for all eternity. Lord, we pray that this love will be relevant in our lives, that we will be caught up by the very essence of this universe, by you, Lord. Lord, we pray that we won't take this grace lightly and that the salvation that we have seen and experienced, that we will use it to glorify you for all eternity, that we will look ahead and all the great things that you are still about to do and know that you must be at the center of it all, that as one day the world will come to an end as the scrolls will be rolled back up, that everything will be drawn back to you, Lord. And so we pray that our response to it will be faith, that we will respond in believing what you are saying is true, not just believing and not just agreeing with the facts, Lord, but coming to you, coming to your son Jesus, eating of the bread of life, drinking from the fountain, Lord, we pray that you will help us to let go of all that is holding us back, that is crippling us, all the false promises of this life, all the pride that is in us, that says that it's my intelligence, my strength, my resources that I can rely on. And remember that they are all being given by you. 
Lord, we pray that we will look towards your beauty and enjoy it just for who you are. I pray that as we wake up tomorrow, we will marvel, that we will be caught up by how beautiful you are, that the world will grow strangely dim in comparison to you, that we will see how the stars and the sun and all created beings cry out your glory. And Lord, we pray that at the end of all, we will find man chiefs and that we will find our chief end, which is to glorify you for all eternity. Lord, bless us and open our hearts that this may become true to us, that this may be the very core and foundation that we build our lives upon. In Jesus' name, amen.